Oh, this is the best time of year. <laughs> it's so dumb. <laughs> you cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day, go see the baby be born and come back. You're a major league baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, um, see, don't answer. Now, this, uh, these are rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm not. Analytics don't work at work. all. It's just a crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a baller. He's a playmaker and a shot controller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bowed. He shattered the mold and all he does is win. All, all he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, Five Thirty Eight Sports Podcast. I'm Trevor Patlin, an editor at Five Thirty Eight. With me in the studio, it's a full house today. First, it's Neil Payne, stat man. Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Chad. How you doing? Doing well. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you for asking. And with me across the table, it's Kate Fagan. Hi, Kate. Hi, Chad. Kate, you are of course an ESPN W columnist and currently in fourth place for the record of the number of media hits done within. ESPN in a single day. What is it? Eight, right? Yeah, eight. That's the top record. Yeah, and, I, and I'm at, I'm at six. Yeah, that's why I'm number four. How many more are you packing in today? Are you gonna be able to hit today? Or no? I'm gonna no, make no. some calls and ask for more media hits yeah. so I can set the record. Good. You know, and just talk about all the sports all the time. Next week, I want to say that you're number three at least, Kate. Okay, all I, right, I want to report back to you guys promising numbers. Also in the studio, it's Kyle Wagner, five thirty eight sports writer. Hi, Kyle. Hey, Chad. Kyle, joining us from the top of the show. Really moving on up, Kyle. In, moving in, on in up. The hot, hot yeah, someday you will have a title also, uh, an embarrassing title that Chad hands out. Neil, do you drink Diet Coke? I do drink Diet Coke. Yeah. Why? Because, I don't know, I like the taste of Diet Coke now better than actual Coke. I, I can't deal with the whatever sugar they put in uh, regular Coke. So. I ask because there is a Diet Coke on the table, and I just... Well, you know, Mike Francesa was in here earlier taping, but also I like Diet Coke. Could have been his, but this one is yours. Yeah, exactly. You're not uh, concerned about the health ramifications? Nah. Are we, we, are we, we all got to go at you? some point. Yeah, we're Coke shame, okay. shaming him. Are you Are you okay with that? On today's show. We're going to talk about the NBA draft. The draft is on Thursday. We are we are recording on Tuesday, and it has been a narrative rumor filled draft lead up so far. Lots of different angles. It seems as though it's one of the more exciting drafts of the last few years. We're going to talk about whether the Sixers were right to move up to grab Markel Fultz. We presume they're going to grab Markel Fultz at least. What the Celtics are up to and what the right way to draft in the age of the Warriors is. But first, let's talk about Chris Stapps. Chris Stapps Porzingis. Earlier today, the news broke that Phil Jackson, the president of basketball operations, or essentially the general manager of the Knicks, is willing to entertain trade talk for Chris Stapps Porzingis, perhaps the only player of note for the Knicks on the entire roster, if you believe Carmelo Anthony is no longer of note. Let's, before we get into our own conversation here at the top of the show, let, let's listen to this take from Stephen A. Smith on first take. This is him talking to Max Kellerman. We don't know because it's Phil Jackson we're talking about here, not the 11-time champion as a coach, but this novice executive who continues to show us all why he needs to get the hell out of New York quick, fast, and in a hurry. This is a disaster in the making right here. Phil Jackson has stopped trying to perform for years. It's unbelievable what's happening right now. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my cool because I'm going to think that Phil, as the draft approaches, is just entertaining stuff just to make sure his phone is ringing. I'm going to hope that he's lying, Max Kellerman, because if this happens, if this happens, 
if this happens, Max, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I, I, I just don't know. I just don't know. <laughs> go ahead, Max. Go ahead. Wow. So Who wants to go ahead? <laughs> you stop him when he says something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything that the Knicks could get that would be equivalent to Porzingis, who is only a couple years into his career and has shown nothing but development and, and, and a bright future ahead? There's not, because here's the thing about Porzingis that isn't true about a lot of young big men. Even Anthony Davis early or Carl Anthony Towns now, he's already a good defender. He's already one of the best big man defenders in the league because he protects the rim and he challenges shots in a way that like most guys don't protect that kind of space. So we have these stats that look at where players take their shots and where the defenders are and, you know, how much they depress the effective field goal percentage uh, based on, you know, how much that shot is worth defended by an average defender. And Porzingis, right, this past year was the fifth best in the league at depressing value on shots taken. He was behind Draymond, Rudy Gobert, Anthony Davis, and Miles Turner. And like Carl Anthony Towns, uh, a lot of people think is the best big man in that class, was near the bottom of the league. Like Chris Stapps does, like, he's a very good offensive player. He's an okay passer. He can shoot the three ball. But he's so far ahead of the curve as a defender already that, like, you can't really replace that. I'm not in the habit of like defending Phil Jackson, but when I the more I thought this through and made certain phone calls to like other GMs, and they were saying that the price for Kristaps Porzingis is like the, the Knicks are almost pricing themselves out of the market with how high it is. I mean, I think we're talking about Kristaps Porzingis, who I'm now just going to call Kristaps. So I don't have to say his full name. <laughs> And we're talking about his upside, and we're not putting anything on the other side of the ledger in terms of like what the Knicks actually want back for him. Are we actually just saying that like there's absolutely nothing that another team could put on the other side of the ledger that could measure up? I don't really buy that. I think more than anything, what we're see- when I think about Chris Epps in this situation, I'm like, look, this is another domino of the Warriors' dominance in a lot of ways. That if I- I'm looking at the Knicks and I'm like, well, okay, you know you're not competing for the next – really five years so why wouldn't you want to get a what if it's like three first round draft picks for Porzingis like does that make like with sense the Nets, the Celtics, yeah uh, I mean I, I understand there's two different questions here like one is if I and I used to be a Knicks fan really what I'm mad about is I'm like if you trade him I have nothing to watch this year Whereas at least I could say I'm watching Porzingis and I'm seeing how he develops versus there's absolutely nothing that can be offered for Porzingis. I don't buy that. Right. I'm I'm more saying that within like the reality of what Phil Jackson is likely to come away with, uh, because we know he likes Josh Jackson and Danny Ainge, like kind of running counterintelligence over the last week, maybe was like, oh, yeah, we really think that, um, you know, Josh Jackson's the best player in this draft. Phil loves Josh Jackson. He's been talking about him since the spring. So is that plus Jalen Brown plus, like, one more pick? Or, like, is that really what they're talking about? Or is it, like, is it that plus Jalen Brown? Or is it just the number three? Like, so, yeah, there's a threshold where you start to, like, get the theoretical value. But there's so much concrete value. Like, Chris Tapps would be number one. You'd be happy to draft Chris Tapps Porzingis with the number one pick. Yeah. So, like, the concrete value is already there. Right, because I totally agree with you in the concrete value. And then when we get into the realm of, like, what what is Porzingis's actual value right now in the market. I mean, are we talking about Phil Jackson saying, I want three first-round picks? 
I mean, I, d- does that equal Porzingis' value? Neil, do you want to speak? Yeah, I mean, and he's also kind of – the Knicks haven't had a young player of this caliber in a long, long time, maybe ever, probably ever, actually. And so I think that plays into all of this panic and alarm also is that this is a team that really – has underperformed historically, uh, only has won two championships, has one of, if not the worst ownership groups in the league. So I think everything has to, it's, it's not happening in a vacuum, right? It's happening in the context of this team that continually, deliberately shoots itself in the foot, uh, for decades on end, that this would just be like, like they have not earned the benefit of the doubt that you would, you know, expect, oh, well, they're going to be good stewards of the, of the franchise. And if they traded somebody like Chris Stapps away, it would be for the right, return and it would be in the best interest of the franchise. Everything that's been done has always traditionally been in almost the worst interest of the franchise. We also haven't seen a trade like that really where like so every lottery pick, every even the, at the top are essentially like you're rolling the dice. Like you can have a Greg Oden, you can have Kevin Durant, you can have players that work out, players that don't. And like there is no sure thing. That's, you know, kind of what the process and we'll talk um, about that later you know, with Fulton Ball. Yeah. Um but no one has hit on that dice roll and then immediately re-rolled it. Like, Chris Stapps is the best outcome. Yeah. And so you're saying that you think it's better than, like, 50-50, that if you get two picks, three picks, that, like, two of them are going to turn into players as good as Chris Stapps? Like, they've already made out on the deal. Like, they've already, you know, had their number come up. And now they're just trying to cast the dice again. And that's a, you made a great point earlier, Kyle, that the defense is the part that's actually kind of the, the furthest along, which I don't think we've seen, you know, very often. Usually with young players, it's the complete opposite. And you have to try to teach the defense or try to, you know, coach them up in that way. And that doesn't always pan out. I'd be curious to see how often, uh, players with kind of obvious offensive potential that haven't quite reached it yet, but have the defense end up actually becoming bigger stars down the line. Okay. So let's leave that there. We'll come back. Back to Porzingis, if the trade actually happens, we'll actually evaluate what exchanged hands. But let's move to our main segment, which is about the, the draft as a whole and what, what we're likely to see on Thursday. I guess let's just start with the, with the top of the draft, which is now a trade, basically, before, or not basically, it was before the draft actually happened. The 76ers traded their number three pick from this year's draft and a future first rounder. Lots of machinations about exactly how good that first round pick is going to be, but it's likely to be very good either next year or the year after that. And what they get in return is the Celtics' number one pick. And it seems by all accounts that the 76ers are going to draft Markel Fultz, the University of Washington guard, uh, with the number one pick. Kyle, you just wrote a piece for 538 about what makes Markel Fultz so good. So give us the sell. Give us, uh, you know, pretend like you're the agent for a second. I mean, he's really good at the basics. He can dribble, pass, and shoot, something that, you know, the Sixers are in need of, players who can, you know, do basic basketball skills. But what really, like, sets him apart is that he draws so much attention, or at least on the Huskies he did, because he they weren't the best team, but he was constantly drawing double teams and passing out of them and could really score from every level. So it starts with the pull-up shot. So he's really good at coming off the pick and roll and just pulling up for a jump shot, uh, whether that's a three or a little bit inside. And then his handle's good enough that he can get inside and he's scored at like also a very good rate um, right at the basket. And so he was constantly drawing double teams and had enough vision and like willingness to pass that he could just kick out for really good shots. 
Yeah, and I think his size is also kind of a, a really interesting part of it, and maybe we'll talk about this with Lonzo Ball too, but uh, we haven't seen big point guards really come out maybe as polished as these guys, especially at the age. And and big point guards, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Kyle, but I think they've been kind of bust uh, prone in the past, but um, it seems like uh, faults and ball might be poised to kind of break that trend. One thing that I think is interesting about both Fultz and Ball is that Fultz's movements seem to be a little herky-jerky, which I think ESPN just did a sports science piece on showing how just the way he carries himself and his his brand of athleticism actually is an advantage to him on the court. And similarly with Ball, we talk a lot about his unorthodox shot, but a lot of basketball experts, guys who have played the game, are like, that actually helps him because you you get used to defending a jump shooter a certain way and so if there's any sort of differentiated release of the ball you have a tough time making up the space mentally to defend it so but i but i want because i used to cover the sixers i immediately wonder whether fultz is really a top five let's say chad that like the the pick they gave up is top seven right i know there's all kinds of yeah machinations of what that pick would be but like is fultz that much better than who they would have gotten at the number three spot i mean i I feel i can hear sam hinky just basically cringing at the thought fit right it's not like the issue is that the the guards would the top guards would be gone by three right i mean i get normally it's about fit and like an average nba fan is like it's about fit and look they compare him with ben simmons and it's perfect they've got all the big guys i just mean that to go from watching the Sixers play the asset game and not care necessarily about fit to giving up one of the most coveted valuable assets to move up only two spots has to be having some fans of the process cringing. Yeah, I mean, in fact, it, it seems like Danny Ainge has kind of channeled his inner Sam Hinkie and is sort of doing the process to the Sixers this time. And it was so funny to see all the all the Philly fans on Twitter kind of celebrating this move that oh, like finally they, they've they've accomplished something. But really, like you know, I don't think that there's a clear cut answer, you know, or, or that Markel Fultz is a guaranteed thing at the, at the number one pick. And so it, it would be kind of this cruel irony on top of everything that's kind of gone down for the Sixers is that the moment that they stop, you know, uh, adhering to the process, someone pulls the process on them and ends up actually, you know, kind of hoodwinking them that way, too. Well, the, uh, there has to be an end point for the, you know, the process, you know, and for... So, <laughs> Sue, this could go on forever. I mean, oh, you God. know, Ben Simmons isn't even playing in the Summer League. We, we, we could, we, yeah. There could be seven more years of the process. But there, there has to be a point where you put plant your uh, heel in the sand and you just, like, go the other way and say, okay, now we need a team that makes sense. They've tried it with, you know, 10 centers on the team didn't work out so good or worked out as they wanted it to whatever but like this is the year uh, which is why all the Sixers fans are excited that like the first time they have something that makes sense on the floor and there has to be like a starting point and like that's the thing with the process is it was all a bunch of vamping until they could get to oh like the first the first year they're actually going to try to win some games and like it finally seems like this is what's happening so yeah, like when they were going to make that turn, like they were always going to have to give there, up a little value but to like, like get that. But there were other guys in the draft that make sense for them who weren't going to cost an arm and a leg to draft up for. I mean, that's the one thing where it's like just going overboard with the price you pay when you know you're not going to be competitive for at least the next three years if we're being charitable. Why would you give up an additional asset just to get incrementally better 
Yeah, and the, the Sixers. I mean, the process was always about waiting also for that like franchise altering talent to come down the line. And I think it's kind of fair in a in a class where the top two players, clear cut top two players, are both point guards. Something that uh, we've written about in the past, which is, can you even win around a point guard, even if it's a Chris Paul style elite of the elite point guard in today's NBA, and have that be the centerpiece of a team? If you're waiting and you're playing the Hold process on, but game, but we and you're just trying, slagged the Spurs. In the playoffs, we're not having a playmaker beyond we did Ka- beyond did Kawhi. Uh, nobody here did. Yeah, no, no. We said that once Kawhi went down, the Spurs couldn't run their offense. I feel like we had that conversation. Yeah, but that was also like tagging onto it Tony Parker's injury and a, and a lot right. of other things. So that's so, my point. You have to have someone who can make the right. plays. There's, there's a differentiation between you need a, a a point guard to make plays versus trading a valuable asset to move up three spots to well, get a point guard. Well, it's a market thing, too, because, like, you say that there were other players that, like, could have fit. Like, it was really uh, at the, near the top. It was him. It was either Fultz or it was Monk, right? Like, because right. De'Aaron Fox is, like, great player, doesn't give you the shooting that Philadelphia obviously needs out there. And every other team has a guy who can, you know, create off the dribble and shoot these pull-up shots, like, get a, get to the rim, like Kyrie in the in the playoffs, and especially the finals. And, like, he gives them that. So he can play, like, a Bradley Beal role where Ben Simmons is apparently going to run the point for them. And, but Beal, like, runs a lot of pick and roll, even though Bradley Beal doesn't really know how to dribble and dribbles off his foot all the time. Like, they need someone to carry the offense. And, like, there just weren't that many guys like that in the draft this year besides him. So I want to talk a little bit about Lonzo Ball, too, because it strikes me that— We're, we're like, the only people not talking about Lonzo Ball. Well, it, it, cool. his <laughs> skill set has been overshadowed by his father and, and all the— and his, what, $500 sneaker and all the sort of the trappings of BS that have gone on that in large part have nothing to do with Lonzo Ball. And so, you know, Neil, one question I had, ESPN Stats and Info ran this sort of projection model that tried to say how likely each of the top prospects in the draft were going to be to become an all-star, for example, this uh, in, at some point in their career. And Lonzo Ball was top, aside from this Frenchman that we'll talk about later in the show, and that it has having the biggest likelihood of, of that happening. And it made me wonder, even before Kyle said what he said earlier about Greg Oden versus Kevin Durant, like when you have two good prospects in the NBA draft, is there any way to actually know when they're of equal essentially value or projection and, and value? Because like to me, it's sort of you make an educated guess, but you're still making a guess. Well, sure. I mean, I think that no team has really shown or no executive has shown like a repeatable ability to outperform, you know, the just baseline expectation of where they're picking in the draft from year to year. And the Lonzo Ball, especially versus Markel Fultz comparison, I think is really interesting because it's like really very different styles of point guard, even like within the same position, you've got Ball who doesn't really score that much and and is really more of kind of like a playmaker, uh, three-point shooter, defender you know, uh, type, maybe like uh, people have compared him to like Jason Kidd with a jump shot or, or you know, uh, someone along those lines. Whereas Markel Fultz is a big-time scorer, huge scorer, and his 
shooting efficiency, I think, is the reason why some of these statistical models have kind of dinged him. And you can say that, you know, he, he played on this really, really undermanned Washington team, and that played a role in that. But uh, even some of these models try to adjust for that, and they still find that uh, he, you know, just players similar to him didn't have uh, or had more of a proclivity to bust than than other types of players. So I think it's kind of fascinating that it's this kind of contrasting style. You're making an educated sort of stab in the dark, but you're you're also making it based on these sort of, you know, like contextual things that you don't even know how your team is going to be down the line, so you can't even make it about the fit, even though the fit is the only thing that sort of distinguishes the two players in some cases. I'm fascinated by the difference between where Fultz lands on these intricate ESPN stats and info model versus the discussion among NBA GMs seemingly that he's the runaway choice as the number one pick, even if there's some smoke and mirrors about like Josh Jackson for for the Celtics. I mean, you look at this model and Fultz being 5.8% chance of being an all-star, that's behind Monk, behind Ball, behind Isaac, behind Tatum, behind so many guys, behind Josh Jackson. Like, what's the discrepancy there? Is that because of the team that he played on? Even if you said it was kind of baked in. Anyway, what is the discrepancy? So to me, I think part of it's like a categorization thing. So you look at uh, – so some of the numbers that we have that I think go into some of these things are synergy where you can look at the types of shots that they take. Like are they coming off screens? Are they in isolation? Are they pick and roll man? Um, that sort of thing. And you look at coming off screens and you expect that number of points per possession to be high – because, like, coming off screens, you're going to get an open look because, you know, that's the only reason you would take that shot. But then you look at the video, because they have video attached to that, of Markel Fultz coming off screens, and they're all terrible shots because his defender, or, like, his teammates don't set very good screens. He's still not very good at using them, but, like, they're also sending two guys at him as soon as he comes around the screen. So if that's what's going in and, like, that's the input, then, like, we don't have the same kind of uh, definition for all the stuff that we do in the NBA of, Oh, how cl- like all the sport view and player tracking stuff of how close was the defender, all that. We have very kind of big boxes that we put into this stuff. Just one last thing about Ball is like the thing that drives me crazy about him is his shots go in. We were talking about like his weird form before, and we talk about oh Josh Jackson, like we can fix his shot when we get to the NBA. Like all these players, we can fix their shot. His already goes in, and like even if like he never becomes more than a spot up shooter, doesn't create off the dribble, which you know we think that he probably will be able to do that. But let's say he can't. He's already so far ahead of where most playmaking guards come in. Like Chris Dunn can't make a shot to save his life. Great passer. Can't shoot. Ricky Rubio. But like Ulonzo already can do that. Yeah, I think earlier in the earlier this week in the office you said he could be Ricky Rubio with a shot, and that changes Rubio's ceiling dramatically. So all right, let's let's leave Ball versus Fultz there. Let's go to the Celtics. There's still a lot to cover with this draft. There's so many different things. Let's go to the Celtics. Um, who traded down, as Kyle alluded to earlier, Danny Ainge has been saying, the GM of the Celtics has been saying, they might take Josh Jackson with the number three pick. Jason Tatum is also being mentioned here and there, the Duke big guy. What what are the Celtics doing in the sense that, are they trying to win now or win later or a little bit of both? Um, there are also some rumors that Carl Anthony Towns, excuse me, not Carl Anthony Towns, um, that uh, uh, Anthony Davis was on the trade market for the Celtics, that they're in, interested in Porzingis, who we talked about earlier. It just seems like they think they're one big guy away. My question is one big guy away from what? Can they beat the Warriors? Can they beat the Cavs? I mean, is the, <laughs> and then you just roll the <laughs> more dice pressing the question. 
I, I just think you have to worry about the monster in front of you uh, more than the one hiding in the closet. And, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's kind of an interesting question because they have been in this mode of stockpiling all these assets over the years and really doing, like, kind of a rebuild on the fly and, and try to sort of build from not bottoming out, which is refreshing. So we should be kind of you know, uh, excited about what this uh, might turn into eventually, but it does kind of have to eventually turn into something. And it's a little bit like you were saying about the process, Kyle, of like, you know, eventually you need to make a return on all of these assets and everything. Especially because they're depreciating assets. Isaiah Thomas is, uh, what, 29 years old, going on 29? Like Al Horford, not getting any younger, and he's signed for the next five years. He's going to be like 35 by the time that deal's over. And, like, these are player types that, like, don't age as gracefully as, you know, guys who are just, you know, not relying on, you know, their quicks to get to the rim, you know, getting in position to make good passes like Horford. And, like, Horford's rebounding numbers are already down pretty uh, pretty badly. And so if they want to, you know, hold out for these long-term things, they already landed a free agent. They already signed a free agent. And Thomas, who's, like, much better than they thought he was going to be, they've already, like, you know, gotten a good portion of the way there. And it seems like if they're going to throw this off and not compete for another four years, that they're just, like, kind of throwing that away. Yeah, because it, it, it seems to me that they're more than just one player away from beating the Warriors. Not uh, The Cavs is several, but you really, even though it's the monster in the closet, if you're, if you're Danny Ainge, that's who your target has to be, especially when you do have so many asses that, that you've stockpiled. So I, and as Kyle mentioned, like, it's all depreciating. And so at some point they have to make some big play over the next 18 months or so, two years, because after that, Horford's less impactful. Same with Isaiah Thomas. So I don't think they're Kristaps Porzingis away from beating the Warriors. But maybe they are Kristaps Porzingis plus if they can package other deals and get Jimmy Butler. I mean, it's, it's that. I mean, that's kind of where we are now with, this, with any team trying to compete with the Warriors. Yeah, and here's the thing about Jimmy Butler, Paul George, like they're both they're in the mix for both of them. Where we are right now in the NBA timeline on what happened to the salary cap in the last couple of years means that they are unique like this isn't a chance that's going to come around for them again because Paul George is making something like 18 million in change, uh Jimmy Butler's making 16 million in change. That's basically what we call Mozgov money. Like they're not going to I call it Evan Turner money, but you can call it what you will. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so like these are like superstar level players being paid like at a sec- essentially mid level range, and in three four years those contracts aren't going to exist anymore. So you're not going to be able to slide in a superstar level player at like an affordable rate. Right now they can get rid of Avery, Avery Bradley and I want to say Zeller someone, and just slide Butler right in there and they can't do that in a few years. Yeah, but the big problem is every other team that they're kind of negotiating with also knows that that clock is ticking, and I think that that also plays into the asking prices that people are wanting for some of these assets. Okay, we don't have a ton of time left, and I wanted to talk about the Frenchman, Frank Tilakina, but we might have to wait to talk about the 18-year-old phenom out of France But listeners need to know that he has a 13.9% chance of being an all-star. Yeah, not a 13.8%. 13.9. I love this model, which will be on the show notes on 538.com. <laughs> I'm hosting the show for a second. D- like, double any other player. Kate, you want to talk about the NBA draft versus the other drafts? Oh, like a meta question? That, you said that you had the yeah, meta. Yeah, I, ju- I just... The meta. It, I know we, we've talked about this before, but it seems like the one 
draft where I feel like there's the most concrete information that actually translates to players' performance in the future, which makes it the most fun for me because otherwise it feels like it's just like we're picking lottery tickets. And that's like, I guess if you had to put a percentage on it of like the NBA draft versus the NFL draft, how much more reliable it is. I oh, like I mean, uh, I don't know if I could slap a percentage on it. I mean, it seems like it's, uh, you know, twice as reliable. I don't know what the, what the rate is, but I do know it's like, you're right. It's substantially more because, you know, like in baseball, the, there isn't a great sample, uh, and, and you don't know about the competition, especially since high schoolers are getting drafted. So normally we'd say baseball is the sport where the stats kind of mean the most because we have the biggest samples and, and we've kind of been studying the numbers for the longest. But in this case, I, I think basketball blows it out of the water, especially since now in the era of the one and done, at least, like you're not even getting high school players. You're getting players who at least had one year of college experience experience, except in the cases of some of these international players, which I think is the last kind of mysterious area where we don't know uh, exactly how good uh, Frank Tilikana and, and 14% people that, chance well, to be an all-star. Yeah, and I'm questioning, you know, I'm wondering whether, like, uh, to my mind, that number, if you're, if you're kind of trying to model the probability of not just an all-star, but all the other different categories, including a bust for uh, a player that didn't come from, like, American college competition, you probably just, like, default to whatever the average bust rate and all-star rate and et cetera is for a player in that, like, general ranking area on Chad Ford's top 100 and kind of call it a day because I still don't feel like there there could possibly be any way to kind of parse things more closely than that at, at this stage of the game. It's also a thing where it's just the smallest league, so it's the smallest draft, smallest number of players. So, like, you don't get to see as many failures at the top where you're expecting the same thing from a first round, maybe even a second round NFL pick as you are from, a, what, a top seven uh, NBA pick. So where if, what, one in two, one in seven, one in two and seven, like, are just flops in an NBA class, that's like a lot more guys that like are just disappointing their teams and their fans. Unless he's Frank Tilakina, which is going to disappoint. He's Kate. he is French John Wall. He's so good. <laughs> all right. French John Wall. We'll leave uh, French John Wall. Hey. Uh, all right. I think that'll that'll be it for the draft convo. Man, we didn't even talk about Paul George and whether he's going to the Cavs or the Lakers or what. We didn't talk about Jimmy Butler really going perhaps to the Cavs. We didn't talk about what the Cavs are doing <laughs> in general. There's we'll, going to be plenty of time yeah, to talk about We'll be back for the free the agency perhaps next week. Um, all right, Kyle Wagner, thanks for coming on and talking about the NBA. Thanks for having me. Okay, now for our significant digit. When a telling number from the world of sports is delivered, I will be doing the delivery this week. The number comes from baseball. It's 51 games. That's how long it took for Cody Bellinger, the Dodgers' Cody Bellinger, to hit 20 home runs, the fewest amount of games for any player to get to the 20 home run mark. Neil. Chad. Mr. Bellinger hit a couple home runs against the New York Mets. This Who is hasn't? Night. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure I hit some home runs against the Mets recently. To break this mark, here's my question. We also have Aaron Judge, who you wrote earlier this week, is on pace to win an MVP and would be the MVP with the least amount of pedigree ever, given that he had never played in the majors. So he would be have zero wins above replacement going into the year. He actually would have negative wins above replacement because he played briefly and poorly last year, Excuse me. Uh, but retained his rookie status for this year. Thank you. So perhaps rookie of the year and an MVP. 
not too long ago, the our colleague Rob Arthur wrote how the kids had taken over baseball, and that the the amount of value generated in baseball was coming from younger younger players, and so the average age, if you weighted by how good people were, was like really down in baseball. And then we were thinking, well, that's probably this might be a one-time wave. This might be a generational thing that has happened, and and baseball is now skewed young, but eventually that means it'll get middle-aged, and then it'll get old until and a basically new crop comes up. as Mike Trout gets older, that's right. when the the waiting of He's like the of Mendoza the line of it, yeah, the Trout line. Are we seeing a new generation with the Bellingers and the Seegers and the Judges now that we're going to? be talking about as this next wave that's already here much sooner than, than we expected. Well, I mean, so in the case of Aaron Judge, just to push back a little bit, he is the same age as Mike Trout. He's the same age as... That's a good pushback. Or roughly the same age as Bryce Harper. So, I mean, he is of that generation. He just took a little longer to uh, kind of reach the, the level of stardom. And, you know, also, uh, yeah, he's only been doing it for, again, a half a season at most. So, you know, some of the... Some of the breathless narrative uh, around that might change a little bit. But, yeah, in the case of Bellinger, I mean, he is only 21. Uh, and we have seen, you know, some young players uh, of, of the same kind of group. Uh, Carlos Correa is another great example uh, of a player. So I don't know if uh, when a generation ends and if the Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, uh, generation also should include Cody Bellinger. I mean, it's only a difference of four years. So, you know, uh, that's probably part and parcel of the same. And then the question becomes, well, when will that sort of uh, well of talent eventually run out? If it is indeed part of just a, you know, a generational thing, or maybe it's just possible that uh, baseball players, just like we talked about Steve Kerr's comments about basketball players getting better over time, maybe baseball players are just getting better over time, and this is the first influx of kids. Maybe you know, probably the there couldn't have been a generation before that grew up playing the game just all the time. AAU travel teams, like everything, uh, from the moment that they were you know stepped on a diamond when they were super young and. The, these are the product of that. We're seeing the kids grown up, the the kids that, you know, just lived baseball their whole lives. So, you know, I think it's kind of cool, truth be told. I don't have anything to add <laughs> except does it seem like maybe you were a little early on Cody Bellinger? I mean, oh, definitely. Like super early on Cody Bellinger? <laughs> I'm surprised Neil didn't say chat. It's only been a third of the season. I was going to say, like, nobody's yet evoked the term sample size when, I mean, he does have... I did. I did. Be 65, the size, 65 strikeouts. I know that's police. like that's just the going rate for hitting home runs these days, but and and nothing in his past, especially in like the minor leagues or AAA, suggests that the kind of performance we're seeing now is one that we will not that we well, can continue I mean, to see it, obviously the number not. But seven it, prospect. No, I meant his home run rate. Yeah. I mean, like it, the yeah. it, the number of at bats he had in AAA versus the number of home runs was like half i know nobody's suggesting he's going to keep up the pace because like that would be historic right i mean uh, looking at his uh his isolated power uh this year as a 21 year old his his isolated power was 389 or is 389 right now the all-time record for someone age 21 or younger going into this season uh was eddie matthews who had an iso of 325 in 1953 and before <laughs> that mel ott in 1929 had a 306 so i mean ted williams at the same age didn't have the same isolated power so yeah i mean it's 
probably going to drop down unless we think somehow Cody Bellinger is the Second the coming. next Ted Williams and someday his head will be frozen and uh, put in a, a lot of cryogenics happening. Yeah. Yeah. Let's not forget Trevor Story, who I feel like had the same kind of storybook yeah, start to last a year season of insane um, and, home runs. And this year, poor Trev is hitting 227 for a very good Rockies team. So, you know, the baseball gods, they take, they give. All right. I think that'll do for this week's show, huh? Yeah. Kate, thanks for talking about sports. Thanks, Chad. Making your sixth appearance of the day. Neil, thanks for talking about sports. Thank you, Chad. This is only my first appearance of the day. Our podcast producer is Katie Ferguson. Alice Wilder is our intern. We got production assistance from Tony Chow and Martin Onebu. You can email us at podcast538.com. We'd love to hear what you think. Find us on your favorite podcasting app. We're also on iTunes, of course, as well. iTunes.com slash 538. Be sure to review and or rate the show while you're there. It helps others discover the program. Our theme song by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chad Matlin. Talk to you next time.